0: Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 80 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. Uh are you and what do you do
1: hey uh, i am ryan medora and i am a bass player writer author educator living in nashville tennessee
0: it's i think we keep we're not sure if we've met before so we're gonna say it's i'm gonna say it's great to meet you ryan
1: (laughs) it's great to meet you too i know uh yeah we've been emailing back and forth but uh it's great to uh get to connect with you more
0: not only that, I think both of us have been. I think you you, you outlived me in terms of tenure at No Treble, correct? How long have you been writing for No Treble?
1: Oh my, for quite some time. I think I probably started in around two thousand nine, two thousand ten ish. So it's been a it's been a
0: while. Yeah, I'm just I'm just the guy who podcasts every month. You're you're killing me there. <laughs> <laughs> So I love. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah, and and the columns are great, and, and we'll get into that. I'm really curious about your origin story. One of the reasons I spoke to Corey and Kevin about doing this show, you know, going back five or six years now, is I'd come across these great players, and I would Google them, or and there's just not a lot of info about them. And same, I was trolling you not trolling you i was i was what snooping on you i guess creeping maybe i was creeping on you on google trying to figure out what your story is and i have little pieces i know that you were born in philly i know you started off as a drummer i know you were into everything from r&b motown to nirvana and red hot chili peppers but there's a lot of gaps in there ryan (laughs)
1: Yeah, there are. Um, but y- you do have the basics, which is great. Um, so yeah, I'm a Philly native. Um, I grew up there. I started kind of playing playing a variety of instruments. You know, like as a kid, I was like, oh, well, I'll take piano lessons for a little bit and then played the flute for three months. And that obviously didn't work out. Um, and then I kind of played drums for a little while. And that also was not The thing that really stuck with me, I I loved being part of a rhythm section, but I was in the school band program and and really didn't get an opportunity to play very much. I was kind of the uh, designated triangle player who uh, (laughs) waited until measure 136 to play a single note. And I just wasn't digging it. You know, I wanted to be more involved musically, so I ended up uh, quitting band and getting a bass, I kind of convinced my dad to go have these with me on like one of those Fender Squire starter bass packs. Um, and that was, I guess, around freshman year of high school. And so I was probably like 14, 15 years old and got a bass, took it home that night, watched my instructional VHS. And uh, that was that.
0: Right. that was the uh, like it's a bass. It's a cable. It's a video and like a really bad amp. Right. Like it's like a $300 yeah. package thing. Yeah.
1: Exactly. But uh, you know what? It was enough for me to be like, wow, I have a bass. This is so cool. Um, and, and I just took to it and loved it and spent many, many evenings, afternoons, mornings uh, sitting in my basement playing along to records.
0: Are your parents musical?
1: Yeah. Well, music was is something that's very much loved in my family. Um, my mom enjoys singing and we've always had a piano in the house and she was – big on my sister and I taking piano lessons when we were younger. Um, and my my dad plays drums. He's kind of been like a lifelong hobbyist. Um, so he, you know, he likes to play in like some little like groups where they get together and play some blues jams and stuff like that. Um, neither of my parents really did music from like a professional standpoint or, you know, made it a point to practice a lot or anything like that. But it was something that was very... Um, very much a permanent fixture around the house. Just, we would always listen to music. We're always listening to the radio. My sister and I would have these epic battles of, uh, (laughs) what CD would make it into the, the car CD player for road trips. Um, so, so I would say that my family is musical, but I am really the only one that has pursued it, um,
0: more so at the professional level. And you have one sibling, a sister or, or more? Yes. Uh, Just one sibling. Yeah. And is she musical?
1: Yeah, she sings. Uh, she also took piano lessons for years. Um, kind of did the college a cappella type thing. Um, so yeah, I think music is just something that in my family is something that everybody loves and and takes part in to some degree.
0: You were talking about this journey of instrument to instrument, and you're you're young at the time. What made you not quit?
1: I think I was always uh, searching for something, um, and I'm also a very stubborn person. Um, for, for some reason, I, I, you know, everybody has different character traits, and uh, some of my character traits are I'm very impatient and I can be very stubborn. And for some reason, those two things kind of led me like to continue searching for something that felt right. Um, and to kind of like jump into something and kind of give it a, my all to kind of try to progress quickly. Um, I think that speaks to the, the impatience that I might have sometimes. Um, but it kind of turned out to be a beneficial thing. And I think the way I got to base is that. Like, I always considered other instruments like gateway drugs. You know, it's like, oh, like, don't do this because it'll lead to that. Don't do this because it'll lead to that. What don't is go the, down this bad rabbit hole.
0: Ryan, what does the triangle lead to? What are you thinking?
1: <laughs> well, I think what it was is I was part of, you know, like a school rhythm section, but I really didn't get the opportunity to play what I wanted to play, even though I wanted to do something rhythmic, um, just because – Yeah, I wasn't really allowed to play.
0: I feel like the triangle, I feel like the triangle may be the gateway drug to drugs is what I think.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, so that's why I quit. Um, But I think it was playing drums because I really, I wanted to play drums. But, you know, in, in a school music program, um, sometimes you don't get the opportunity to do what you want to do. You kind of are at the mercy of the other people in the program. Um, and you know, who's like the leader of the drum section and things like that. So I just wasn't getting what I wanted out of the situation in the school music program. So I said, I need to go elsewhere. I need to find something better for me. I need to find a a stronger drug, so to say. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of what led me to playing bass.
0: So uh, there's a bit of a, I guess it's, it's a, there's a bit of a gap in between, okay, so not the drums, but this, what I mean, something's got to be going on in your life, whether it's musical, whether it's influential, whether it's friends that points you to the direction of bass. And I say this because historically I've had en- I spent enough time with the players to know that usually it's the person who wanted to be in a band and everybody else had instruments. So they picked up the bass like the bass becomes the secondary or third instrument instrument. And maybe it was in relation to how you saw the drums, but but you still are making this leap to get, to to bass and not to guitar or not to trumpet or sax. What was it about the instrument that you thought, well, this is it? Like I, I I'm going to try this thing.
1: Well, I think I always heard bass and didn't necessarily know what it was um, because you know I grew up listening to like a lot of Motown, a lot of stacks, a lot of Muscle Shoals, a lot of Philly Soul. You know, Philadelphia has. A really rich and diverse music scene. Um, and so there was an element of soul music in one shape or form being played a lot. And I think a lot of the music that I really reached out to to explore and and the music that really resonated me with me were uh, from like older soul records and in particular, like kind of classic soundtracks. Um, So, you know, I growing up, I had a lot of CD soundtracks. I had the soundtrack to uh, Forrest Gump. I had the soundtrack to Remember the Titans. So a lot of the music that I was listening to were actually featuring a lot of music from like late 50s through the early 70s. Um, And that's just what my favorite music was. You know, I think that I have have a memory of being in like seventh grade and we had an English class project where we had to talk about like our favorite song lyrics. And my favorite band at the time was Buffalo Springfield. Um, And the song that I picked was For What It's Worth. So I was super into just like music of the 60s and a lot of these songs that had really incredible classic bass lines. Um, And I was also a huge Beatles fan. So. Um, I loved Paul McCartney and realized like, oh, wow, like he's playing bass. I listened to Motown records that had really like strong, prominent bass lines. And uh, I think it was just the thing that I resonated with and realized once I got my hands on the instrument, like, oh, this is letting me play the stuff that I've been hearing and didn't know I wanted and needed until now.
0: Was Buffalo Springfield A common choice or were your friends looking at you sideways, including the teacher?
1: Um, No, I was definitely a rebellious one. Uh, (laughs) I think I also had, you know, how when, I don't know, when you're a kid, you kind of develop these weird preferences. um, And there was a point in time where I, like, refused to listen to music made after, like, 1973, I think was my rule. Um, Which, (laughs) looking back, is just an insane thing for like a 13 year old to, to say, it's like, oh, I don't listen to music made after 1973. Um, but that's kind of how I felt, you know, and I felt very strongly about that for a short period of time. It has since, um, that barrier has since disintegrated. You've
0: you've loosened up, right?
1: I've loosened up. I've loosened up. Um, but I think that is just the thing that I kind of realized that there was something about that music that really spoke to me and I appreciated the recording quality and the lyricism and the production and everything like that. Um, And it just so happens that there's some great bass playing on those types of records.
0: The soundtrack CD thing that stuck out for me, is that, were those CDs your parents' CDs? Was it just, we're watching these movies as a family, let's buy this music? uh, I always found soundtrack buying a really peculiar thing. It's like you're buying it for the one or two hit songs, at least for me it was back in the day. And then the rest of the stuff, you know, a lot of filler. It's changed over the years for sure, but where did that come from? Like who in the family was like, Oh, we need to own like, that was a great movie Forrest Gump. We should own the soundtrack.
1: I think I honestly loved that. I mean, I know my, my parents did as well, but, um, I was really into the, the music that was in movies. Um, so I would want to go see a movie and then, you know, get like Sam Goody gift cards for my birthday. So I would go and like buy CDs. Um, and I know to this day, like some of the first CDs that I owned were, were soundtracks because they had a lot of the songs that I liked on them. And, and to me, when I think about my relationship to soundtracks, I kind of envision it as like the uh, precursor to the Spotify playlist, as odd as that may sound. You know, these days um, we have Spotify playlists, which are curated collections of songs with a particular vibe or atmosphere that. You know, whether it's like, oh, hits of the 70s or chill Americana coffee shop music, you know, those are what we know as um, like playlists and things these days. But to me, I think soundtracks were that. And I I didn't realize that at the time, but, you know, it was specifically crafted music that told a story or created a vibe. Um, And there were just certain movies that had the, the story and the soundtrack and the vibe that resonated with me.
0: Yeah. As you were saying this, I was quickly trying to Google it and I don't think I found it, but I remember really distinctly these incredible Motown compilations on CD. And I think they even were doing them by year at one point. And these really cool box sets, I don't know if you were ever exposed to those, but it it brought me back to really hearing, you'd, you'd see the CD five or six songs you liked, but then you would hear 20 others that just would blow you away.
1: Yeah, uh, solid gold soul.
0: Oh yeah, okay, maybe it was that. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was that. Yeah, I I had it, um, and and we had a lot of those. We had like I think like an eleven cassette tape, yeah, yeah, box of like wop hits. Um, <laughs> right. so you know, who put the bop in the bop shoo bop bop is one of my favorite songs because that's what I was listening to as a kid. Um, and then like the solid gold soul stuff. I remember like seeing commercials and trying to. Uh, Beg my parents for like pure funk volume one <laughs> and pure disco, Um so those types of compilations and things at that time were were huge for me.
0: I was listening to a, a podcast the other day with Brian Eno, who was being interviewed. I think it was Broken Record with Rick Rubin, and Brian Eno went into this whole thing about how when he how he got into doo wop music and why he loves it, and it was one of those genres that I self admittedly hadn't spent much time with, but it's it is. It does seem to be a genre that is coming out more and more with different artists. Because I, I think it was even um, Mark Ronson was talking about duop also recently about it being a massive influence in how he was creating sounds or even producing people. So who knows? Between that, you Ryan, we might be seeing a, a renaissance of duop now.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm totally down with that. Yeah,
0: I, I think I would be too. <laughs> I think I would be too. So. <laughs> You were talking about McCartney and and the Beatles, and th- there's probably a Mount Rushmore people I'd love to have on this show, Paul McCartney being one of them, to just really talk about the base. I think when it comes to general mining for stories out of Paul McCartney, he's done a lot of interviews and documentaries, and I don't know how much more gold there is left in that mine. But when it comes to just talking about bass, I'd love to speak to him about it. But I will say that more recently, I don't know if you had a chance to watch 321 McCartney with Rick Rubin. Have you seen that documentary yet or no?
1: N- not yet. Oh, you got to watch it. That, that and, and Summer of Soul are on my to-do list of yeah. things to watch. Right
0: yeah. Now. I mean, there's a really long segment in it where Rick Rubin is really constantly highlighting the bass playing and for those who may not fall in the same camp as you and I, Ryan, who feel that I don't even know if we'd have rock riffs on bass the way we would if it wasn't for McCartney, it really highlighted it. And so as I was getting ready for our conversation, I was like, I hope Ryan has seen this because there's a couple scenes in there where if you like the bass, it just goes to a whole other level. And it's stuff you haven't really heard McCartney talk about. It's, it's It frustrates me that people don't I mean, I guess when you have a body of work like you do when you're in the Beatles and solo, it's hard to talk about the instrument. But I don't feel his name comes up as much as it should when it comes to great bass players.
1: Well, I think that in some circles it does, in some circles it doesn't. To me, he's kind of the quintessential song player where there was a time when like music shifted from, yeah, bass players kind of play like – kind of the classic 1-3-5-6 or 1-3-5-7 blues-style bass line to songs that are 1-4-5. And the Beatles did that early on, but then, you know, a couple records in, the songwriting became so much more complex, and that kind of opened up what the bass could do sonically within a song. And I think that there is this, like, time to experiment where it's like, oh, well, I can totally change, like the kind of predetermined notion of what the bass was doing. And when you combine that with the influence of the other music of the time, you know, they're listening to all the soul records that are happening in the States and and they're trying to emulate different types of bass playing. Um, And I'm sure Jamerson has a lot to do with the like musical influence that Paul McCartney had. Um, And you can kind of hear that. But I think really the songwriting changed. And because the songwriting changed, the style of bass playing was allowed to evolve along with it
0: but even the application of effects, and there were moments in this documentary where he's playing segments of bass and I actually have to date thought it was some kind of other instrument, an oboe or something. The effects that he used or that in pushing George Martin to try different things, it's it's really it was really it really like if my eyes weren't wide enough interested in just Paul McCartney's bass lines, it was really expanded just watching them play that bass. And, and it didn't even sound like a bass. Like there are moments in certain songs that you would think it's another instrument and it's actually the electric bass.
1: I mean, that's so cool. And that's, you know, that's why the Beatles were the Beatles. They were yeah. some of the first people to like have synthesizers on the record. You know, you listen to like Maxwell's silver hammer and there are
0: sounds on that song that
1: didn't exist a couple of years before. Yeah,
0: there was, there was somebody, know, so. yeah, there was somebody who was interviewing Paul McCartney and they were, you know, there's so many artists from, from them that, from them that feel that their best music might still be ahead of them, whether it's your Bob Dylan's of the world or Neil Young's or what, what have you. And they were asking him about that. Do you feel that your best music is still ahead of you? And he was already at this point in his sixties and seventies and he just quietly went, I was in the Beatles. <laughs> like, like, like the, it's all behind. There's no whatever I do forward. It, that's that's really, and I guess it's uh There's only a certain person who can reach that top of that mountain. I guess.
1: <laughs> I guess so, but um, I don't know. We all keep trying.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's just an interesting perspective when you have a, a body of, of work like that. When you when you're influenced by somebody like a Paul McCartney, how quickly. How quickly are you jumping to you mentioned Jamerson others do you find it sometimes hard because there's not a level of of skill with the instrument that 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 deters you from it when you have roots that are so strong
1: um, I think that it kind of pushes you to be better and you rise to the occasion if you feel like you have to do that um, and i I kind of feel like for me I wanted to play as much as possible so if it was hard for me I kept kind of working at it that's like the stubborn uh stubborn personality trait in myself that comes out and sometimes you know I failed and would continue to fail and probably still do um but like I think it only kind of pushed me to try to figure out what was happening and um you know want to be able to play the things that I heard and and if I could hear it and understand what was happening if I could pick out the notes I knew it was possible for me to play it and so I think that that was like kind of the driving force even if I didn't have the technical ability to do it the fact that I could try to like hone my ears and be able to hear what the part would be so that one day I could play it uh I think that was the thing that kind of pushed me along
0: So so you're playing around with with this kit essentially this this the amp the bass the chord the video how long is it between playing the instrument and realizing oh oh this is my life like this is we've made choices now these choices are permanent uh
1: well uh i don't know i kind of have struggled with that just because um you know when i was in i had a lot of interests and i played sports like I was on the softball team all throughout school I was in like the science club I was in the technology club I was president of this I did like a crew for the school show um and so and I took like I went to summer school so I could take more classes I was just somebody that like always wanted to be involved in a lot of things and so for a while bass playing very strongly resonated with me but it was almost like you know one part of what's on the dinner plate and uh, I think that there was such a huge emphasis on kind of eclecticism with my family and and with what I was going to intend to do in terms of higher education and going to school that um, because I didn't play music in school and, and really nobody except for my close friends even knew I played bass. Um, it was hard to kind of have it be such a huge part of my life until I was able to really recognize, oh, I don't want to put as much effort into all the other things that I'm doing and I'm gonna put more of it into playing bass. Um and that was kind of like a realization that I had towards like honestly senior year of high school when I was like applying to colleges. Um and even still, I applied for music business programs, not for performance programs, because I intended on going into like the business side of things. Um, and then it kind of wasn't until, you know, the end of college when I decided that I would w- would want to pursue music professionally, right, as, so you, you know, doing a, being, being a bass player.
0: So you go to New York City to study that. But you're playing at that point, right? You're still playing or doing gigs or or not at all? Were you really focused on the the business side of it?
1: So I was. I I, uh, was in a band. My my first band, I didn't join a band until I went to college. Um, So up until that point, I was like playing at blues jams and, you know, would maybe get together with some friends. But I didn't really have many friends my own age that I played with. Um, And when I went to college, I kind of got um, into this kind of like alternative rock, hard rock trio um, that I absolutely loved. We were called Below Carmine, and we were awesome. Um, I love that name. That was – thanks. Yeah, that was my first, like, college band, Um, and I was in there for maybe, like, a year and change, and then the other people graduated. Um, So I I kind of played – not many shows. I didn't really get to play in any ensembles in school. When I was in school, it was definitely more like classes, business internships um, and playing on the side as much as I could fit it in. And yeah, that was kind of my life for a while, just like being in like little kind of four fun musical projects. Um, And then during the summers, I would come home and I would teach at a music camp. So there was a a program called like summer music programs, which was a kind of school rock style summer camp for kids. And my favorite thing to do every year was like schools, like the semester's over, I moved back to Philly for the summer. I work for nine weeks at this summer camp teaching rock bands. Um, And then come back and do it next summer. You know, that was a huge part of my life. And I think that that's something that really kind of further pushed me in the direction of really wanting to play music professionally.
0: Most people try to study music. I, I did this. I studied music post-secondary bass being my primary instrument. And I decided really quickly that I actually preferred the business side of it because I'd been writing articles and reading really to publishing magazines. Um, And I'm not saying that doesn't happen the other way, but it's interesting that you're studying the business and decide, you know what, I actually want to be on the artist side. What was that decision like for you?
1: Well, um, I had a few different internships. Um, I interned with a couple different companies in New York city, um, and did everything from kind of talent buying to concert production promotion stuff. Um, I even did like a semester abroad in in Prague and worked with the Prague Philharmonic. Um, and kind of was on the classical side of things for a minute. Um, and then when I moved back to New York and had my senior year, I decided to, do a thesis, which, um, was not necessary to graduate, but I was like, I'm going to do a thesis anyway, because I'm an overachiever. You
0: went to summer Um, school. And
1: I went to summer school. Yeah. Um, basically, so the, the story behind it was I had a, a duo with a good friend of mine and a fellow music business major. Um, and we played kind of like original music and then some covers and did like an acoustic thing. And, uh, we were playing at a coffee shop one time And this was like in New York City, right by NYU. And midway through our set, the manager came up to us and said that we had to stop playing. And the both of us were like, what do you mean? We're just playing like acoustic guitar and bass and all of our friends are here. We have a packed coffee shop full of people that all came to see us. And they said, well, we heard you play a cover song and you're not allowed to do that. And immediately I was like, wait a minute. That's not true. Um, And I had this like kind of crazy reaction of being very upset, being told by management that I had to stop playing. And I think we had played like a Bare Naked Lady song or maybe a Spice Girl song, something that, you know, we did our own version of. Um, And in my music business class training stuff, it was like, well, no, like it's not the artist's responsibility to have a performing rights organization license, like a PRO license. It's the venues. And I kind of went down this crazy rabbit hole where I was inspired to write a thesis about performing rights organizations. Um, And I did a ton of research and I interviewed a lot of different people. And I ultimately discovered the fact that like a lot of businesses and things like that use like The ability to manipulate what the rules actually are to kind of squash artists that they don't want to have around um, for the sake of just like keeping their own butts, you know, happy and clean and everything and maybe not having to pay licensing fees. And uh, I did this huge thesis about performing rights organizations and really realized that, you know what, I don't want to be involved on that side of the business, um, which is kind of where I was going before. And then had a kind of uh, an internship that was great when it started, but then something where I was like, I don't want to be in an office all day, every day. Um, and the the combination, the perfect storm of those two experiences were like, you know what, I don't want to be involved in the business if it's going to be this way. I just want to play music. Mm. And That was that.
0: Yeah. I mean, mean, the career speaks for itself. You've played with people like Arthur Brooks and Darius Rucker and Carrie Underwood and Hanson and Brooks and Duns, and the list goes on and on. Most recently with Robin Ford. How does it work for you in terms of when you're playing with a solo artist versus a band when Robin Ford wants you to be in his band? Is that something you're thinking, well, I'm more of a hired gun or do I want to be in a band? How do you see your career professionally as a player? Because I want to get into the fact, obviously, that you've got, as your characteristics will probably lead the forward story into book writing and no trouble contributions and teaching and more than just that live or, or session player.
1: Well, I kind of want to do everything. Um, you know, I love being in different situations. I love being pushed and challenged in different ways um and i kind of think that like over the course of time like a career changes and there's an ebb and flow and there are opportunities that arise um and it very much has to be improvised where uh you know you get certain opportunities and you always get a chance to say yes and you always get a chance to say no and depending upon what your answer is and what works for you, um, your career will take shape in different ways. So for me, um, I always like to diversify a lot. And I like I said, I like to challenge myself. So, you know, sometimes, yeah, I want to be the side person that just gets called to do a one off gig. And other times I want to be the person that's like in this band and touring with this artist for an extended period of time. Um, And then there are other times like when there's a pandemic where everything falls apart. And you have to say, oh, well, I've got a couple other irons in the fire. Let me switch gears and and prioritize those. Um, And that's where you start like teaching more and writing more and things like that. So I kind of love doing everything because everything presents its own challenge. And everything kind of lets you discover more about your musical self. You know, the way you approach um, doing a recording session is very different from the way you approach learning songs to do a cover gig versus learning songs to play with an artist versus learning a song so that you can teach it to somebody. So I kind of like the challenge of all of that.
0: Yeah. And from a business perspective, multiple streams of income is a good lesson for a musician to learn. I mean, those are good skills to have.
1: Yeah. The uh, diversifying your portfolio (laughs)
0: uh,
1: was definitely one of those lessons that resonated with me a, a long time ago.
0: So, when does YouTube come into your life? How do you see it? When do you start thinking there's stories to tell here? I can help people learn stuff I was watching right before we came on. Uh, I think it was Psycho Killer Talking Heads. And it was so so enjoyable to watch you play it. And then, even more enjoyable to almost want to pick up my bass, which I haven't done in a long time, and be like, I should learn that bass line. This is great. Like, Ryan really breaks it down.
1: Well, the YouTube thing is interesting. Personally, I'm very like, old school in terms of learning where to me, when I started learning material, you know, I had a boom box and I had a CD. It was and a I nightmare. Had keep, was, yeah, I had to it keep rewinding nightmare. to the top of yeah. the song. I cannot tell you how many times I heard the first 20 seconds of Bernadette, um, but <laughs> more times than I can count for sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, so to me, whenever I learn music, I always usually learn by ear and I always just, you know, If I'm not using a CD, which is kind of out of date now, you know, I'll pull up the song on Spotify or Apple or iTunes, whatever, and listen to it and hear it and try to figure out how to play it. Um, Realistically, that's not how a lot of people learn these days. I think a lot of people prioritize learning visually over orally. um, And that's just kind of like a sign of the times, a sign of the technology and the fact that like, yeah, you know, you, you don't have to go out to a bar to see somebody play something. You can go on YouTube and see somebody play a song that you're trying to learn. Uh, and so the reality is that people just learn in different ways now. And as much as possible, I am trying to like have this mini audience on YouTube where I think I have something to offer as an educator in terms of how you could learn a song and how you can think about learning a song as opposed to just learning what The notes are or you know oh i play the fifth fret of my e-string eight times you know to me that that's not the most musical way to learn something so when i do videos and lessons i kind of try to bring the musicality into it as opposed to the like rote memorization um and so that's kind of what i like to use youtube for is like show people that, yeah, especially beginners and intermediate players, that there's a way to understand all of the music that happens in a song, as opposed to just like the tab or or just watching somebody play it.
0: And how do you feel now about it? Because it seems to be a place where many people probably discover you're playing, get to know you, understand your personality. It probably leads them to places like picking up the book, bass players to know and, and the other stuff you're doing maybe wanting to have lessons, maybe wanting to go catch a Robin Fortra when those eventually come back. Do you, do you see it differently in terms of this channel for you to tell stories and be a bass player? How do you, Are you thinking about it differently as it evolves?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, to me, you know, I didn't really even get into the YouTube game until... Uh, I'm gonna go with April 2020. You know, where up until that time sounds like a familiar
0: date. I'm trying to put it.
1: (laughs) Well, let's see. Everything shut down in March, and uh, I ordered a video camera (laughs) the night that almost all of my work disappeared for the rest of the year. And uh, then I started making YouTube videos. So um, honestly, to me, it was something that I used to connect with people because you know, pandemic life, you're kind of in your house quarantining, doing the thing. And for somebody that's always, like, made a living going and playing shows and and connecting musically with an audience, um, YouTube seemed like the thing that would allow that to be the case, whether it's not – I mean, it's not necessarily performing. It's more so teaching. But um, for me, it was kind of a good outlet to say, like, well, let me see if I can make some videos, if I can come up with, like, a cool way to teach something. What would – be beneficial to the YouTube community because frankly, there's, there's so much out there. There's so many people doing lessons, so many different courses, everything like that, that, um, I know that whatever I try to do, I want to be some kind of like particular niche where people find me and they like, or like, oh wow, like this person, Ryan Medora really helped me make sense of music in a way and something clicked and a light bulb came on and it has never done that before. So to me, I love it as an opportunity to connect with people all over the world and to try to teach in, um, in a beneficial way that really helps people's playing so that not only do people find that like, wow, I'm, I'm enjoying the entertainment value of these videos, but I'm enjoying learning from this person. And sharing knowledge is something that's hugely important to me. So, um, I think that it's cool to do that and to kind of have a different persona, you know. Especially in the Nashville music scene where I am, it's very rare that you ever get introduced at a show. You know, if you're playing a show, it's like usually the artist doesn't go around the room and and right. and say, "Oh, this is the person on drums and this is the person on bass." My
0: band. Here's my band.
1: <laughs> right, like some people do, but. You know, when I played with Robin, like that was something he absolutely did. He wanted everybody to kind of have a moment and and showcase their personality and take a solo. But with a lot of gigs around town, it's just not that way. And and I said, well, if I don't get to be introduced to people like as the player, maybe I can do that as a teacher. Uh, So so that's another reason why I like YouTube and the fact that, you know, people all around the world can see you play and, and learn something from you and feel like they have a connection. You know, that's a really cool thing. Instead of saying like, oh, wow, the, the only people that see me are the 40 people in this bar on a Sunday night is very different from the thousands of people all across the world that may stumble upon a video.
0: Yeah, but there's a funny skill set in there, Ryan. I'm curious if you have... If you've thought about it, because there's a lot of people who know how to teach that aren't really great at playing or doing. There's a lot of people who can play, but really don't know how to teach probably more of that than the other. And there's a big difference, I think, between playing and teaching. And if you reflect on your life, I mean, I'm seeing things from, you know, sports and softball and science and tech and school shows that might have had you on this path of being that type of person who understands and can show but it's not necessarily a natural thing to be able to be great at both playing and teaching, or do you see them as two separate things? How do you, how do you think about just your, your, your ability to do that?
1: I think that the thing that teaching does is it lets you try to understand the things you have, um, an innate talent to do and, what I find is when I'm able to focus on the things that may become easily to me but more difficult to somebody else, when I can understand why I'm doing something and how I'm doing something, it makes me better at that and it makes me more um, capable of teaching it. So to me, the, the two things go hand in hand where – um like thinking about teaching a concept means that you have to have enough mastery of it yourself to be able to communicate. And and I'm somebody that really enjoys communicating. I enjoy words. I enjoy crafting sentences and paragraphs and columns and books. Um, and so I enjoy thinking about the what and how of things. Um, and some players enjoy doing that and some players don't. And then some teachers are better at explaining it than they are doing it. Um, I think that there's value in doing both things. And that for me, like career-wise, I've always loved sharing the excitement that I have about music with other people. And I love trying to like expose somebody to the fact that like, man, like you can totally do this. You can play a blues and jam with people and feel within the moment of music, um, and, and kind of share the excitement of that experience or the excitement of listening to a record. Like I like sharing that with other people. Um, and I think that because I play bass and bass is primarily an accompanying instrument, I like to be accompanied by other people in a musical experience. So to me, teaching is another way to do that in addition to playing. And, and I think it's great to, to try to be able to do both because one improves your ability to do the other.
0: So you have an idea for a book the, that book becomes base players to know learning from the greats. Where were you at professionally? What made you decide to do the book? Why that format?
1: So uh, for a long time, I was doing the column series for no trouble, which was base players to know. Um, and it was great. You know, I loved doing it mainly because the more music that I was exposed to, the more my perspective of what was capable, what the instrument was capable of was able to change and evolve and develop. Um, And, you know, it's kind of like, I'm, I'm a big, like food person. So I love trying different types of foods and trying different restaurants and going to different countries and trying cuisine there. And every time you do that, your palate develops a little bit more. So to me, listening is the same way where the more, um, the, the different dishes or records you listen to or players that you get to know the the broader your scope of what you can do on your instrument um it, it, it the broader it becomes you know you d- you develop this palette and and so i thought that that was really um important for me as a player as somebody that like ultimately wanted to get into the session scene like i love playing on records and when you are a session player you kind of have to have this huge scope of musical knowledge um i figured that would be like a a good way for me to develop some of those listening and playing skills but b learn more about the instrument that i love so much and c be able to share it with people so the column series started off as a thing where it's like well let's really appreciate different elements of what bass players over the course of time and different recording industries um have really contributed to the evolution of the instrument. And so I've been writing this column series for a long time, but I really honestly always wanted to write a book. I've always been a huge reader um, and I've always envisioned kind of like being an author as well. So um, I kind of was like, well, what can I do? How can I repurpose and edit and take a new, um, like a red pen and a new new black pen to uh, a lot of this column material that I'd written and turn it into a book. Um, and I also did that because I had made a record a few years ago, um, just like an instrumental trio record. And, you know, these days, like anybody can listen to any record on Spotify, Apple Music, et cetera, And when you make a record, you're not really going to like – make any money off of it. And not that we make music to make money, but it's nice when we invest a few thousand dollars in making a record, hopefully we get it back. Um, and that's just something that as an independent artist, you can't really do or you can't really do easily. So the fact is that people still enjoy books. Um, and I was like, well, maybe I can take all of this column stuff that I've written and monetize it somehow into a musical form of expression that's in a book form as opposed to a recording form. So that was another inspira- inspiring, inspiring uh, concept behind the book.
0: I know it sounds like I teed you up to do another shout out for no trouble, but honestly I, I did not. <laughs> but you know, when I think about a book like that and then I look at the table of contents, there's names in my brain that I would make assumptions of Billy Sheehan, Jaco Pastorius, Ron Carter, Carol Kay. You chose really different players that was both surprising to me, and it made me really happy that it wasn't just the ones you're gonna obviously rattle off, but you still have to write that book and not include those those players. What what was the decision process there for you?
1: So that was that was a huge decision, um, and and one that really was based in the, the knowledge that so much information exists. And, you know, if I want to find out anything about Jocko, like I can read a thousand articles, I can watch the documentary, I can listen to records, I can hear stories that are documented for, from other musicians. And there already is content about these people. Like they're amazing and, and we should study them and we should know them. But the book is titled Bass Players to Know. So there should be people that you don't already know you know, and I, and I tried to kind of make a, you know, it's like, it's it's like, it's a, it's the point of introducing. But you kind of should,
0: you kind of should know Ron Carter and Carol Kane. You kind of should.
1: Absolutely. But I guess maybe the title should have been bass players. You should also know.
0: (laughs) That's great. That's, that's, that's version two. V two. We got it.
1: Well, because, you know, I wanted to create a book where there was a little bit of familiarity. Like, you know, you have some like, very well known players in there like you've got Jack Bruce you've got um Mike Durt you know a couple different people but people who aren't necessarily like household names and people who wouldn't necessarily be on the cover of a magazine um, um you know because they've either passed away or you know, they're just their music's just no longer in the spotlight, but they've played on thousands of records and, and songs that we hear for walking through the grocery store or we have to learn for a cover band gig or whatever. Um, and the fact is that we really don't know who a lot of these players are, even though we've probably heard their bass lines and heard their songs thousands and thousands of times. You know, we do have the ability to like, do a Google search on Carol Kay and, and listen to a lot of the stuff that she's played on. Um, And not that we can't do that with other players, but like, you know, her name is mentioned a lot around the base media sources. So um, I wanted this book to really kind of say like, well here, like check out this person, learn about this person, come to know this person and, and realize like, oh, man, they play on this record you've heard a thousand times that you absolutely love, but you never knew who played bass on it. Um, so so really, the, the whole point of the book is to expose people to other players and other styles of music uh, and other musical stories that they maybe wouldn't have otherwise.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because when I was flipping through it, it really it resonated with me so deeply because it's literally the reason I started the show. I was telling you before, there's so much when I look at a bass player or look them up. It's always the gear and the amp and who the sponsor is and how to play this riff. And I'm like, I want to understand why <laughs> I just, I'm more interested in the art and the creativity. And your book was the closest thing that I had seen to that type of thinking. And it always makes me wonder like, why is the bass this weird instrument that when we talk about it or the players, it's always so technical versus like the artistry of it. It makes me crazy.
1: Well, I think it's the the notion of subjectivity versus objectivity, where, um, you know, it's very easy to say, yes, I play these strings and I use this amplifier. There are quantifiable, like, objective answers to those things. Um, When we listen to something, it's subjective. And so the purpose of this book was not to provide objective inspiration, meaning like tab and notation, transcription transcription stuff, Um, but to try to tap into the subjective notion of, well, why does this player's style develop this way? How does it sound on this record? What is it contributing to the music? You know, it's not necessarily about the bass in and of itself in terms of this is objectively what the instrument's playing or what they're doing or what the Strings the players using are, um, but it's about what they're adding to the music and how the music becomes more whole because of the art that they bring to it. Um, So yeah, I think it's it's hard to write a book about subjectivity, but I tried to do that.
0: Every person I get a chance to speak to, I'm having a lot of conversations. I'm always like, where are we at right now with COVID in the world? And what I mean by that is not where are we all at, but where are we at? Like, where are you at? It's a weird time. We're seeing access for some people to vaccinations, the opening up of of gigs. I live in Canada. You're in the States. It's like two different planets in terms of how things are happening. So where are you at with this now? Do you feel like I'm in a place where I want to hit the road with Robin Ford and be out there and be doing tons of live gigs has, has COVID really changed you? You talked about YouTube author teaching more, what, what are you feeling? What are you seeing in terms of this new trajectory or is it a new trajectory? Will you go, just go back to how it was before?
1: Uh, I think it's a, I think it's going to be whatever we let it be as like our, our, our individual stance and, and what we as the collective want it to be. Um, I guess what I mean by that is the fact that, you know, concerts are being booked, festivals are being booked people are buying tickets to shows you know i just bought my first pa- uh, pair of concert tickets the other night for All the right. show coming up what do you got so what did you buy uh i got so uh it's my husband's birthday next month and we're going to see los lobos <sighs> and steve <sighs> earl <sighs> at the ryman
0: that's that's so, um, that's something
1: yeah we're big los lobos fans and so Happy birthday, Craig. Yeah,
0: happy birthday, Craig. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. So so that should be like a fun, a fun thing. But yeah, it's the first concert that we're going to um in a long time, you know. But the thing is, like, there's this combination of bands choosing to go on the road, management choosing to book things, venues saying yes, we're open, and the agreement from people saying, Yeah, we're gonna buy tickets and show up. You know, so um I think that to some degree, the industry right now is trying to make up for lost time where we're trying to cram in a year and a half's worth of work into the next six months of the year, um, which is hard to deal with, but also exciting because you're like, wow, I have the opportunity now to go on the road and play shows and do festivals and do things that, you know, I wasn't able to do for like a year and a half. Um, And then you kind of balance that out with the fact that like, wow, like over the past year and a half, I've learned new skills i bought a video camera i can now do some editing i'm better at you know notating some baselines i'm teaching more and kind of trying to strike that balance between returning to old life and holding on to the new life that you built i think is a challenge it it is for me right now yeah um but I hope to try to be able to do both
0: Well, same, as I mean, much I, as I can. You know, same, I get up on stages and do my keynotes and suddenly you're doing them into a webcam and you're resisting and then you get good at it. And you're like, I really enjoy this. And then you're wondering why would I ever not want to do a keynote sitting in my house in my socks? <laughs> and exactly. But the world lights up and then you're being offered. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't I go back to the thing that I loved and was good at? And I think it's your story is, is similar to mine. I think similar to others, which is this this new grapple we're going to have to deal with.
1: Right. And and I think that to me, having the past year and a half to kind of take a step back from the, you know, every weekend getting on a flight or a bus or, and going on places like I loved doing that. But having a break from it was amazing because never in my life had I had two days off in a row. You know, I think last year was the first like 2020 was the only time in my life that I've ever had like Saturdays and Sundays free um, to, you know, do whatever I wanted with the time. And that was kind of a really nice break to have. And I was able to hustle as much as possible during the week and then kind of have weekends to chill or whatever. And now it's like, man, I haven't had a day off in in probably about two months. Um, And and it's hard to keep up with that pace. And I think that um, to some degree, it's trying to find the balance between what you need as a person versus what you need as a professional versus what you need as a spouse or a family member Um, is harder and harder right now than it's ever been because the expectations are constantly changing.
0: Yeah. And I also find that me recognizing my own privilege has been a really big part of it too, where I have the, I have the fortunate privilege to be able to even make those choices and, you know, suffer the way so many people did. And so that, you know, for me, maybe it's a, an added layer of guilt to the equation where I'm like, well, what are you turning down in a world where so many people don't either don't have a choice or haven't had a choice? I become, I think more empathetic and aware of that by privilege in place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I think about the fact that, you know, being here in the U.S. and in, in Nashville, you know, like I had access to a vaccine months before a lot of people in other places, like people in Canada, per se, you know, um, and the fact that getting that meant that I could go on a vacation and visit members of my family that I hadn't seen in a year. That's like a huge deal. That was a huge element of privilege that, you know, I'm, I was grateful to have. Um and grateful to be able to like get on a plane and go see some, some family members. And that's not something that everybody else has access to or has the money to afford or whatever. Um, And so, yeah, it's kind of a weird time where we're battling a lot of notions of privilege and career and lifestyle and things like that. Um, And, you know, widening gaps for various reasons. So it's kind of a crazy time.
0: The last thing I'm curious about, Ryan, is influences, because in going through bass players to know both the book, following the column, having this great conversation with you, it seems to me, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, that you're really open to having even your influences change quite dramatically or or opening up of genres that creates new types of influences. How do you see that? Because... Again, if I were to contrast that as a personality trait, you have your influences and those are your influences and those are the anchors, they're your personal Mount Rushmore and you move on. But I was never like that. I mean, I think as I get older and especially COVID, I become way more nostalgic, which is a weird thing for me to acknowledge and and explore a little bit. But I'm wondering from your perspective in terms of actual bass, bass players, people that you admire, do you find that your influences have fluctuated or am I overplaying my hand here?
1: Oh, they absolutely have. Um, I think that my influences have changed a lot because I'm constantly searching for, I guess, really who I want to sound like as a player, who I want, like, when, when people listen to me play, I want them to hear versatility. I want them to hear creativity and heart and passion and inspiration um, and because of using those words, I want to keep those words at the forefront of my mind as as a listener, as a player, as a learner. And I think that, you know, to, at some point in time, you, you get to the you – you have the ability to physically play a lot on your instrument. Where it's like, yeah, I can play this song, I can play that song, cool. Like, you have the physical dexterity to be able to play things. So, at some point, you go from um, – getting improving your ability to play to improving your ability to listen and so for me my desire now is to improve my ability to listen and I want to listen to different things I want to understand what's happening in different styles of music I want to understand the elements of tone that I hear from one person or one bass um, as opposed to something else so to me like my influence have changed greatly just because of you know who I'm choosing to listen to, why I'm listening to them, whether I have to learn it to play it myself or to teach it or to write about it. Um, and I think that that's just the greatest way to develop as a person and, and as a player, you know, especially, you know, over the past year, I was able to actually listen and learn a lot of music that was very different from what I'd been doing up until pandemic time. So, um, I think it's cool to keep to keep growing as a player and to keep growing as somebody that's constantly inspired by music.
0: I can't thank you enough for this conversation, Ryan. It's been amazing to hear your story and get to know you. The book is called Bass Players to Know. You can check out Robin's playing on latest stuff with Robin Ford. I guess time-wise, hoping this episode comes out in time, there's also this really cool thing called Become a Bassist Summit that's happening August 10th to 14th. Um, hey, Ryan, let people know where they can find out more about you. And if you want to talk about any of the other things you're up to, I would love to hear about that.
1: Yeah. Um, well, uh, you can always go to my website, Ryan And I usually post, you know, blogs and videos and like educational things I'm doing on there. Um, as well as shows and things like that. Um, I've got a couple other books. I have, um, a beginner improvisation for bass players book that you can get on my website. Um, if you want to start improvising over chord progressions, um, that's a fun tool to have. Uh, but I also kind of keep a running Spotify playlist of music that I've played on. So, um, I've kind of, you know, really enjoy getting into the session scene and playing on different records. There's some that I've produced of my own music or co-produced of friends music, um, or just get hired to play on. So I have a Spotify playlist called and on Bass Ryan Madura, which just, um, has a lot of the music that I've played on that you can listen to on Spotify. Um, so that's a cool thing too. And yeah, just every, basically everything's on my website or my YouTube channel.
0: And next time, hopefully you'll come back and do this again. We could talk more about some coffee and books too. Cause I'm curious about that as well. <laughs>
1: Oh, certainly. Well, I, uh, I have my favorite roasts for sure. <laughs>
0: okay, great. Ryan, thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Um.